Time for the 82nd plus or minus three quack cast. This quack cast is being done on the 11th day of February 2011 and is called Placebo Again. Medicine is simultaneously both easy and hard. As an infectious disease doctor, my day can be summed up with the phrase, me find bug, me kill bug, me go home. Sometimes it is just that simple. A lot of the times, of course, it isn't. I may not be certain what the infection is or even if the patient has an infection, and allergies and or antibiotic resistance limit therapeutic options. The patient has comorbidities that limit effectiveness, and the patient has no financial resources for the needed treatment. I am lucky. Since most infections are acute and make people feel terrible, and then require a relatively short course of therapy, during which the patient feels better. I rarely have to worry about compliance with the treatment plan. It is the rare patient, usually a heroin user, or a particularly irascible old man who will not follow through with their antibiotic course. I do not have to worry about chronic or symptomless diseases like diabetes or hypertension, or the complications of obesity, where long-term compliance often limit therapeutic success. Long-term, it is difficult for people to stick with their therapeutic plan, much less their diet and exercise resolutions. Infectious diseases is a job where I do not have to concern myself with placebo effects. As QuackCast listeners know, I do not think there is any such thing as a placebo effect that has any clinically meaningful application, especially in the world of infectious diseases. Infections are frequently a binary proposition. Either you are infected or you are not, and either I am curing you or I am not. Still, there is more to medicine than me find bug, me kill bug, me go home. Often, most of the time spent on a consult is talking with the patient, explaining what they have, why they have it, what are we going to do about it, and what they can expect. As an aside, while I take a history, as we say in the field, patients provide a story, a narrative, much of what the patient has to say is frequently of little importance to the medical matter at hand, and there is something about illness that lends people to philosophizing at length, especially at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. It's amazing how many people are like Grandpa Simpson, going on about how they wore an onion in their belt, as was the style of the day. I hate to tell you this, but the details of your life and the philosophy of your existence is neither that interesting or that original. You are, like me, not that compelling. I have heard the content of what you were saying before, more times than I can count. At one of the hospitals I go to, they report metrics on patient satisfaction, and one is, my doctor listens carefully to what I said. We are usually around 80%. But I point out that at least 20% of the time, the patient is not saying anything worth listening to. The elderly male I saw last Friday at the end of the day felt obligated to go on and on about his grade school and high school GPA, I guess to let me know how smart he was. Such irrelevant soliloquies, at least irrelevant to making the diagnosis, although they do add insight into the patient, are common. I pretend to listen with interest, looking for the right moment to interrupt. And I am glad we are not a telepathic species. If people could read my mind, I would be in a world of hurt. 
I suspect that part of the allure of alternative medicine providers is that the dull details of my life, which are of no interest to anyone but me and maybe my family, are of endless interest to the fake diagnosis and treatment of the homeopath or naturopath. The patient gives us a story. We extract the small amounts of information that are relevant to the diagnosis, but we do not give a story back in return. We give data and odds and studies. Scam providers return a story, a narrative. True, it's a false story, a false narrative, but they incorporate the faux uniqueness of their patient. The problem with medicine and the source of its diagnostic and therapeutic power is that there is usually nothing whatsoever that is special about you or me. Humans operate under very tight and predictable operational parameters, physiologically, emotionally, psychologically. Human variations are usually trivial, since extreme variations are usually fatal. But everyone prefers to operate under the delusion that they are interesting and unique, and scam practitioners feed into that. I notice when I talk to patients and they ask, well, why do I have this infection? I say, oh, bad luck. And everyone always says, oh, that's so typical of me. If something bad is going to happen, I'm the one who's going to have it happen to them. They always see themselves as that unique person who has nothing but bad luck. I've never had a patient say, huh, that's unusual. I'm usually so lucky. I recognize that conversations with patients are important for a variety of reasons, since the more they understand about their infection and its treatment, the better they will be able to adhere with their compliance or comply with their adherence, whatever the current buzzword is for getting the patient to do what you want them to do. Well, I think the patient's attitude has nothing to do with whether or not I successfully kill their MRSA on their aortic valve. Being ill is difficult, and the better they cope and comply, the better will be their quality of life during the illness. Of course, we have four possibilities when treating an illness. We can improve the pathophysiology and make the patient feel better. That's the best case scenario. It is what I strive to accomplish with my patients. Option two, we can improve the pathophysiology but the patient feels no better or in fact feels worse. My father's chemotherapy for his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cured his tumor but he never quite felt well thereafter. We can fail to improve the pathophysiology, but the patient feels better. In my world, that is mostly when patients are on hospice, but it does apply to chronic pain. And finally, we can fail to improve the pathophysiology and the patient feels worse. That is, of course, the worst case scenario. I have long realized the importance of what is referred to as a resident as the super tentorial component of the illness. Supertentorial essentially means the brain. It is a large part of being a doctor, but one of the most difficult parts since the approach differs with each patient. I do not need to individualize the antibiotics for your MRSA osteomyelitis, but I do need to individualize for how I communicate about your illness. Is the patient smart, stupid, uneducated, overeducated, Confused, drugged, depressed, demented, fatalistic, unrealistic? You need to have the message fit the recipient. At the heart of communication with patients is honesty and truthiness. I have to get a sense of who you are and tell you what is occurring. But the patient-physician relationship at the end of the day is based on honesty. 
and honesty is the basis of autonomy. For without honesty, there can be no autonomy, and autonomy is one of the first principles of medical ethics. The principle of autonomy recognizes the rights of individuals to self-determination. This is rooted in society's respect for individuals' ability to make informed decisions about personal matters. Beneficence and non-malfeasance, the other key principles, are always two and three on the list. Maybe it's because it's always alphabetical. But a patient cannot make informed decisions if they are not told the truth. And as a rule, autonomy trumps beneficence and non-malfeasance. I can't lie to you, even if it is to your benefit. No weasel words or Romney-esque invasions, but of course, there are many ways to tell the truth. Do I say an 80% cure rate or a 20% failure rate? Do I emphasize the good? Do I dwell on the bad? It is not what you say, but how you tell the truth that can be important. But you always have to be aware of the line and not cross it. I wonder how well other docs do it, as I not infrequently get a comment from a patient that they appreciated how clear I was in my explanation of their medical situation, good, bad, and indifferent, that I told it like it was. I've had a lot of awards from the residents over the years for being a good teacher. However, my favorite award I've ever gotten from the house staff was a plaque that said that I was voted the physician voted most likely to tell it like it is. I'm particularly proud of that particular plaque. Now, we can all manipulate our patients in subtle ways. A classic example is sitting down when you go into a patient's room. Patients will rate the time spent as longer if the patient sits down instead of stands, even if the actual time is no different. There are other tricks of the trade, I'm not certain I like that phrase, tricks, that can be used to enhance the therapeutic interaction. I don't think of it as lying, but part of being a good doctor, especially in a time when patients are referred to, and never, ever by me, as clients and consumers, and it is our job to have happy customers. Even if I thought placebo effect existed in any meaningful way, I could never use it deliberately since it violates the heart of the prime directive of medical ethics. It is why the editorial in JAMA, Lessons from Recent Research about the Placebo Effect from Art to Science, besides only presenting half the information, give me the willies. Dr. Brody and Dr. Miller were the authors of this editorial. Dr. Brody is the author of The Placebo Response, How You Can Release the Body's Inner Pharmacy for Better Health, which I have not read and will probably never read. But the Amazon summary says, quote, According to Brody, the placebo phenomenon, which he pronounces mysterious and unknowable at its very heart, is when the convergence of healing signals, assigned meeting, and human expectation stimulates the body's inner healing power. The patient's positive mental and emotional reaction to medical intervention releases what Brody terms the inner pharmacy. I wonder if you need a DEA for that. In other words, even though the treatment is benign, the body's biochemical pathways are stimulated to produce healing in the same manner actual medicines do not. Could harboring hope, faith, or expectation be genuinely potent factors in the healing process, Brody asks? I believe they are. In fact, 
I see them as the heart and soul of the placebo response. End of quote. Doesn't look like a promising start to me. But exactly what is placebo? In popular understanding, placebo is giving a sugar pill instead of a real medicine, like Doc Martin did in the episode I saw the other day. A teenage girl wanted a larger chest, so he gave her some peppermint breath mints and told her to take them once a month for a year, and he pointedly never contradicted her misunderstanding as to what she was receiving. Of course, the young lady went instantly from poor self-esteem, who was bullied by other girls, to an aggressive young lady who verbally bit-slapped down her bullies with newfound confidence. Of course, in keeping with the two-placebo effect, no anatomy was changed. I've only seen a few Doc Martin episodes to date, but so far I have been both impressed by the accuracy of the medicine, and I love the fact that most of the problems seem to be infectious diseases. For a vascular surgeon, he does a pretty good job of diagnosing and treating infectious diseases. Placebo is also used in clinical trials. It is an inert treatment that is the surrogate for all the other confounding factors in patient treatments that can determine results. The natural history of the disease, physician and patient bias, regression to the mean, etc. Interactions with healthcare providers and the healthcare system always have effects on patients, especially for subjective symptoms. As studies and their meta analyses have consistently demonstrated, placebo in clinical medicine never alters the underlying pathophysiology, the objective endpoints. It only alters the subjective endpoints what the patient feels about what's going on. Placebos do not treat or alter the underlying disease. They only alter the symptoms, and really, not so much. Symptom relief is not a bad thing, as long as it does not violate autonomy, beneficence, or non-malfeasance. It's kind of hard to do when the placebo effect is based on lying to the patient. The JAMA editorial completely ignores the first use of placebo and completely ignores the data that placebo has no effect to alter pathophysiology. I suppose it is all on how you read the literature, what you consider a lie or not. Reading Placebos Without Deception, a Randomized Controlled Trial in Irritable Bowel Syndrome, which the editorial interprets as, Recent research now challenges prior beliefs that placebo treatments must be prescribed deceptively in order to work. If you read the paper, you discover that patients in the study were told placebo effects are made of an inert substance like sugar pills that have been shown in clinical studies to produce significant improvement in IBS symptoms through mind-body self-healing processes. And the study included four talking points. Quote, one, the placebo effect is powerful. Two, the body can automatically respond to placebo pills like Pavlov's dogs who salivated when they heard a bell. Three, a positive attitude helps, but is not necessary. And four, taking the pills faithfully is critical, end quote. Now, those instructions, to my mind, are deceptive. Placebos are not powerful. They do not have a significant improvement. And by saying that a positive attitude helps, well, you're incorporating the patient in wanting to please you. So I'm not surprised that patients reported feeling better, as they often do after a visit with the doctor. But it was based on several lies, and the study would violate patient autonomy if applied outside of a clinical trial. You can tell a patient up front that a positive attitude helps, 
and you should not be surprised when they report that they are feeling better. Being in a medical trial will lead to the patient trying to please the researcher, the clinical trial being a lot like the Stockholm Syndrome. The Stockholm Syndrome is where people who are kidnapped look upon their kidnappers sympathetically. I'll grant you that there are, quote, two entwined psychological mechanisms that are thought to underlie placebo effects, expectancy and conditioning, end quote. And the patients can be manipulated in clinical trials to report feeling better. Placebo effects are neither clinically impressive in their effect nor ethical for a practicing physician, but one man's ethics is another man's belly laugh. Note the author starts out by saying the effects are psychological, and changing psychology will not make your breast cancer remit. But then, somewhere along the line, something changes. At one moment, I am seeing a Victorian woman looking in a mirror, and then suddenly, I see a skull. Because placebo becomes more than a sugar pill, more than a placeholder for the numerous confounding variables and biases that muddy the waters of clinical trials. It turns out the placebo effect is plural, and they are as many as sands in an hourglass. Quote, Neurophysiology and neurochemistry suggest there are multiple placebo effects with different neurobiological mechanisms, depending on the organ system and the target illness. End quote. Good. If there are as many placebo effects as there are illnesses, perhaps I can use it. Failure rates with vancomycin for MRSA hover around 30%. Maybe I can use placebo effects to help, but somehow that never seems to be the case. Infections are recalcitrant to placebo effects. Instead, they then mention the usual suspects of subjective experience. Predominantly pain and a wee bit of irritable bowel syndrome. But it turns out I have been practicing placebo medicine all this time and didn't even know it. You can elicit the placebo effect by being, well, a good doctor. Quote, Good ways to enhance everyday encounters, including inviting and listening carefully to the patient's story of illness experience, offering a satisfying explanation for the patient's distress, expressing care and concern, communicating positive expectations for therapeutic benefit, and helping the patient to feel more in control of life in the face of illness. End quote. That's what we're trained to do, although we don't always live up to it as a doctor. Everything that I do as a physician can evidently elicit the placebo effect. Even, quote, rather than advising the patient to get more exercise, a physician can write a prescription for exercise on a prescription pad, thus using ritual in a way designed to elicit a placebo response along with increased adherence. That's a placebo effect? Every intervention and interaction becomes the opportunity to elicit a placebo response, and I suppose failing in these characteristics will enhance the nocebo effect. It is a definition of placebo so broad as to be useless. What isn't an opportunity to elicit a placebo or nocebo effect? When a definition apparently encompasses everything, it becomes nothing. Quote, Although patients' beliefs vary depending on geography, culture, and education, at least some of today's patients are eager to become active collaborators in mind-body healing practices. 
Many patients will be relieved to learn that physicians wish to avoid unnecessary and harmful drugs and want to maximize the powers of the mind alongside those drugs and other modalities that are well supported by clinical evidence. Huh. Show of hands. How many of you like to prescribe unnecessary and potentially harmful drugs? And that sentence suggests that the author knows that maximizing the powers of the mind is not well supported by medical science, evidence, or even reality. The patient-physician interaction can be complex and multifaceted. All human interactions can be complex and multifaceted. As healthcare providers, we are trying to influence the patient's behavior and attitude in an attempt to help heal the patient. In the old days, it was called a good bedside manner. As I said before, no different, but perhaps more complex than the salubrious effect one ape has on another when they are groomed. A good bedside manner helps the patient feel better, doesn't make their brain tumor go away, or their liver abscess shrink. And in this day and age, you no longer get to eat the lice. Having a good bedside manner and helping the patient feel better about the psychological subjective components of their illness has always been a part of medicine, although obviously some are much better at it than others, and some are more interested in it than others. You don't become a pathologist because you like to work with people. A good bedside manner has always helped the patient feel better, and there's no mystical underpinnings to the process. It is not, quote, the practitioner has many means to help each patient activate the potentially harmful inner pathways that assist healing, unquote. There's the leap that drives me nuts. Placebo is good at symptom relief, nothing more. Nothing is healed, although I have an old school idea of healing. The process is cured. A healed wound is closed and has a scar, not having less pain. Placebo heals nothing. There's no potentially powerful inner pathways by which placebo heals. At best, when you are lied to, you may feel better. Quote, but what about low-risk interventions such as acupuncture to treat low back pain? Today, if rigorous clinical trial evidence shows such modalities to be better than no treatment or usual care, but no better than placebo, the treatment is often summarily dismissed, as it should be. If trials show an intervention does nothing, it should not be used. Substitute pharmaceutical medication for acupuncture. Would you still recommend it? Quote, an open question for future research and ethical reflection is whether such modalities can be recommended consistently with informed consent. End quote. Sure, here's your informed consent. Acupuncture does nothing. There are no meridians, there is no key, and studies are clear acupuncture does nothing to alter your underlying disease. At best, you may be fooled into thinking your pain is decreased, but the effect will not be sustained. Besides having no efficacy, there are occasional severe and even fatal complications from the procedures, and many practitioners are not particularly fastidious with the techniques of infection prevention. It will cost you $100. Do you want to have acupuncture for your low back pain? doesn't take much ethical reflection for me. Of course, virtually all of SCAM, from acupuncture on down the alphabet, does nothing to alter underlying anatomy or physiology. No healing is accomplished. And all SCAM results is placebo, the psychological effect of a lie believed to be beneficial. A good therapeutic 
relationship with a scam provider that is based on a lie is not, in my narrow world, ethical. But I'm usually not a means justifies the ends kind of guy. They go on with a well-defined effect of placebos for modifying symptoms in clinical trials to every interaction being able to cause placebo effect. To placebos can heal. I tend to like clear thought. And these essays are written in no small part to help me clarify my own thoughts on the topics about which I write and podcast. When everything is placebo, and somehow the mild decrease in irritable bowel syndromes is translated into a powerful mind-body medicine beyond mild symptom relief, I look in vain for clear thinking. And how understanding how a mild decrease in symptoms heralds a bridging the long-standing gap between the scientific and humanistic orientations of modern medicine, I can't see. I also don't see that gap in my practice. The gap is not in medicine, but in the variation in providers, not all of whom are proficient or interested in maximizing the doctor-patient relationship. Given half the data and wild extrapolations, that is not from art to science, that is from molehill to mountain. Addendum. As I finished this podcast, there was a study that crossed my desk. Adherence to placebo and mortality in the Bader Blocker Evaluation Survival Test, which concluded, quote, analysis of the best trial data support a strong association between adherence to placebo study medication and total mortality. While probably not due to publication bias or simple confounding by healthy lifestyles, the underlying explanation for the association remains a mystery. It takes a while for me to read and digest a new article, but my initial take is that being adherent in one sphere of your care probably means you're being adherent in other spheres of your care. Being adherent in general leads to better outcomes, and there are a multiplicity of factors that decrease adherence and worsen outcomes in patients. It is never one intervention that leads to a good or a bad outcome, but the summation of many small interventions and interactions. Adherence to placebo is probably such a marker. I would see no reason to postulate a mysterious and powerful mind-body healing effect. And that ends the 82nd plus or minus 3 QuackCast. Don't forget to go to moremark.squarespace.com where you can find more Mark Chrislop. And you can go to Skeptopoden, a Swedish skeptic podcast where I was recently interviewed about 33 minutes into the Swedish, you will hear my dulcet tones, because the world does need more Mark Chrislop. See you for QuackCast 83, coming up soon. Bye. <laughs>